Thanks, Amy. Uh, good evening, everyone. This is our second week looking at our series, God Is, We Are, and it's a very, uh, they have very two uh, intention, but important things to kind of work out. Uh, not just because it's really important to understand who God is, it's also really important to understand who we are as people. And the second question, who, who are you, is, I think, becoming a question that's getting harder and harder to answer, culturally speaking. Um, previously, and in many cultures still today, the dominant view was who you are was based on things that were external to who you are. In other words, things that you don't have control over. Uh, it could be race, it could be gender, it could be class or caste, it could be your age, it could be the type of employment you worked in. All these things were determined for you by the culture that you were in. You knew who you were because you were told who you were, externally focused. Now, this view, of course, is not without some, <clears throat> pardon me, some major problems. Things like sexism and racism are just the start of some of the issues when you have a culture which defines uh, someone's self that way. But now what's happened is, particularly in the West, and Melbourne is certainly part of the Western viewpoint, we've become more and more internally focused when deciding to answer the question, who am I? Uh, and it kind of seems obvious in some way. Uh, don't we get to decide who we are? Don't we have agency in deciding who we are? And we're told that, look, our accomplishments and our abilities, our race, our age and gender, they're important, right? but they're not foundational anymore to deciding who I am and who you are as a person. The definition of self is now almost entirely internal and authoritative. What I mean by this is we use the language, I choose to identify as. A really common way people would, would kind of talk about who they are. Uh, conversations in the past might have begun, I think A, and here are my arguments and examples of why I think A. These days, though, the conversation has changed. Now it takes the form, speaking as an X, I believe A, and if you don't believe A, you don't like me. I'm offended. So the whole, the whole way of having a conversation about who we are as people has changed very, very quickly, although it has, it has long causes, but very, 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 very recently. And by the way, if we do think everything is internally determined, then it makes sense that our self would be as well, if there's no external authority at all. And unsurprisingly then, as a result of us internalising everything, happiness and self-esteem become the new goals that we attach to our sense of identity. Uh, up until recently, it was important to have a stable job. Why? Because that would enable you to support yourself and potentially a family. There was a security there. That was a good job. But these days, jobs are not about being stable. It's important to have a fulfilling job, a job that gives you meaning as a person. And so we're told now that we're to trust ourselves and listen to ourselves and follow our hearts. And we can all be astronauts, right? This and this, the great thing. We, we, everyone, gets a, everyone gets an award now when you do a race. Back in my day, one trophy. Now... Everybody's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. And we have a social media uh, uh, culture where we construct perfect highlight reels of our lives. It's called image crafting, where we craft just the, the perfect boutique view of what my life, of course, 
is always like. There's no actual resemblance to our real life. It's the image that we craft for ourselves online. But of course, there are a number of problems with this view of self. Firstly, the expectations are so insanely high. Uh, sorry to break it to you, but we can't all be astronauts. We can't all be astronauts. Right, the other challenge is everybody looks like they're doing awesomely well online, but the reality is they're not. And so this adds to the misery because everyone else looks like they have a successful job, potentially family, they've crafted the Insta filter just right. No one's taking photos of their dirty washing pile and the dishes that are piling up. No one does that. Hashtag blessed, right? No, that's not the way it works. And thirdly, when we move identity and authority to, to something internal, we lack a common ground, a common language for conversations. It becomes a battle of authorities rather than trying to find a way to talk and share about who we are as people. And so it becomes very combative. Maybe you've noticed that. And so there's a genuine, I think, identity crisis, particularly in the West, around what does it mean to be a human being and how do we work out what that is? And as a result, unsurprisingly, there is a massive amount, particularly under 35s, the research says, uh, of confusion and crisis and mental health challenges. We are in the safest society in living history. We, the standard of living is extremely high. Uh, Australia is ranked fourth in the world in standard of living. We did some research on this. Got kind of the Swedish countries, the Nordic countries, then Australia. Sorry, New Zealand, we beat you, just. We have better paying jobs. We have an extraordinary healthcare system. Yes, not without its challenges, but on a world scale, amazing. But yet there's been a massive increase in anxiety and depression to epidemic levels since 2008. It's a 150% increase. So how do we respond as Christians to a world that is wrestling with this question? Who am I? Who am I really? Well, we see from the scriptures, as we, we kind of started last week, the beauty is that our identity is found not, not, not in determining what, just what we feel, but something much more profound in the fact that each and every human being is made in God's image. And that gives each and every person that you've ever met and ever will meet intrinsic value and worth. You've never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. Made in God's image. That makes everybody astonishingly worthwhile and valuable. But there's, but there's more. It's like one of those infomercials, right? That's, there's more. The Bible tells us even more. Profoundly, we're actually created, not just in God's image, but to have a relationship with God, a connection with God. And it's not transactional. It's familial. It's, it's the language of family. Made in God's image and made to be in a familial relationship with God. We call God Father. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have kind of lost just how radical an idea that is. Um, it's astonishing when you think particularly about how huge and powerful God is that you get to call God Father. And so I've got, I've got a little pun for you, and I'm going to show you a picture. My pun is this. Uh, you and I have one. The king seldom has one, and God never has one. So you and I have one, the king seldom has one, God never has one. 
Anyone willing? Anyone brave? I asked my kids when they were younger this pun. They said, is it a bath? <laughs> so I think the king probably bathes more often than, <laughs> than rarely. The answer is a peer, an equal. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One in Isaiah. Not only has God created all there is, he sustains it moment by moment and second by second. And we've, we kind of forget just how astonishing that makes God. And I've got a little picture for you here. Very pretty picture, right? Bit of, what's the phrase called? Cat? Cat? Astro? Astrophotography. Astrophotography. There we go. Um, here's some astro... I didn't take this photo, by the way. This is, this is uh, Google. This is your friend photo. Uh, this is a picture of the Eagle Nebula, or part of the Eagle Nebula. It's actually more than just this bit. Uh, to give you a bit of scale, on the biggest one, on, on the left-hand side, top to bottom... 38 trillion kilometres. Now, that's kind of a number that's hard to get your head around, so let me put it in light years for you. If you could travel at the speed of light, which, good on you, by the way, if you can, four years. Four years to travel from top to bottom. That's astonishing, right? Here's, here's the real amazing thing. There are more nebula, if that's the plural word, nebulae, than there are people on Earth. This is what Isaiah 40, 28 says. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See, the reality is, all of our concept of God is way too small. Um, because our brains actually can't compute God's bigness. Our concept of God is too small. doesn't matter how smart you are, whether you've been a Christian for a million years and can travel at the speed of light. You can't just get your head around how enormously powerful and almighty God is. The, the fancy word is their transcendence, his otherness, his hugeness, incomprehensibleness. Um, you can't control God, can you? Can you control a God who makes nebula 50 bajillion kilometres high? Is that a God you can manipulate with your, your prayer life or, or bargain with? God, I've got something you might like. Really? <laughs> I've got a couple of nebula. What do you got? But yet this is the God that we can approach. In fact, boldly approach which seems to defy all common sense, right? What on earth would you do to, to, to approach a being who can create these things? The Bible says that you can approach boldly. Boldly. Because while God is the almighty and all-powerful sustainer, he is also God the Father. God the Father. And he's God the Father in two, two ways. First of all, he's God the Father in the sense that he's the first person of the Trinity. Trinity, God is three persons, but one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's got to hurt your head a bit, right? Once again, brains are too small. Not your fault. And so when we say God is Father, it's a genuinely relational term. We're saying God is Father, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, 
And throughout uh, the New Testament, Jesus always, almost always refers to, Jesus as, uh, to God as his father. In other words, at the heart of God is two amazing things that sit together. Uh, almighty power and eternal relationship. Together. Almighty power and almighty love sit together at the heart of who God is. God is father. But there's another really powerful way as well. We, we talk about God being our father. And I've got a little picture to help you kind of work, kind of work through this. Okay. Do we recognise what's going on here? Uh, well, I said this morning, do any old people know who the, the president is? And I realised that offended people. Uh, any people with lots of wisdom want to tell me who the, the person at the top is? JFK. That's right. Uh, John F. Kennedy. I'm JKF, by the way, so I feel a natural affinity. Uh, just hope I don't end up looking out for grassy knolls all the time. Uh, President of the United States, okay? Now, what has happened here is something bizarre has gone on because if you're very sharp-eyed, you'll notice a small child has somehow weaseled his way into the White House, into the Oval Office. Now, you can't just walk into the White House. Uh, two reasons. The Chief of Staff. Talked about Chiefs of Staff outside earlier, didn't we, guys? Right? There it is. Or you're looking to do a coup, right? They're the two reasons we've discovered recently in America that you can kind of enter, enter into government <laughs> buildings. In other words, only important people are allowed in to the, where the president works. Yet here we have a picture of a small child somehow got in, unannounced, just walking in and playing. He's got some toys there. So what's going on? See, not only is God the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, God is our Father. See, that's uh, John Kennedy Jr. playing at the feet of the world's most powerful man, just oblivious to the fact. Who knows what, what JFK is working on? But here he is happily playing in his dad's office. The God who flung stars uncountable into space is your Father, the God who is the judge of the living and the dead, is your Father. See, a key way that we are to relate to God, to understand God, is not just Almighty, yes, absolutely, but also as Father. That's how we relate to God. J.I. Packer wrote a great classic book called Knowing God, and he writes this. What is a Christian? He says, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as their father. That's the richest answer. Not the only part, but he thinks it's the richest part. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes out of the thought of being God's child and how much she or he makes out of having God as father. The thought of having God as Father must control us as Christians. It must control our worship and control our prayers and control our whole life. If it doesn't control these things, he says, you don't understand Christianity. That's how foundational it is. Now, I want to just note here, it's really important to note, and I understand not everybody has a good father. Some people have good fathers, some people have indifferent fathers, some people have terrible, even absent fathers. But what we're being taught here is it's actually God who defines what fatherhood is. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, God is called the father of the nation. 
uh, at least 14 times. In the New Testament, again and again, Jesus tells us, this is how we, how we speak and relate to God, as Father. Jesus is God's perfect Son, in a perfect relationship with his Father, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are brought into his relationship. And so in, in, in a real sense, we share Jesus' sonship. We are united with Christ so powerfully that we become sons. I'm keeping the word sons, not sons and daughters, and I'll come back to why, why I'm going to say that in a minute. And the key way this happens is adoption. This was in both of our readings from... Uh, from Romans 8 and from Galatians 4. Romans 8, 14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, we, we are adopted into, into God's family through the supernatural work of Jesus, death and resurrection. We become one with Christ. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 puts it a very similar way where Paul writes, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. See how it works there? The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. There's that phrase again. Since you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. What Paul is doing is using a cultural practice that was, that was done in the first century to explain what's going on. Uh, Romans would adopt people. It's not quite the same way we do it. You would adopt your own children in Roman culture. What would happen is it's the moment when your, your offspring, uh, would be a boy, by the way, because it's a patriarchal society, would go from being a child who has the same rights as a slave. In fact, they'd wear the same clothes as a slave. To being a son with a special toga. Very, very fancy. And the, the father would take off the toga of a slave and put on the toga of a son and say, you are now my son and my heir, I adopt you. It was a cultural practice. And you could adopt people who weren't your genetic son. Maybe it was a, a nephew or someone who you take taken money on board to look after. In other words, this person went from being a nobody to someone who was your son by, by, by all of cultural law and an inheritor of everything you had. You're going to inherit the family business son. At that moment, from slave to son, that was adoption in the first century. You adopted your own children. By the way, notice here the revolutionary fact that women are made sons. I kept the word son there so you understand the, the, the air bit. So it's not just men now. Revolutionary, women and men are now children, we use that word in our, in our modern context, of God, who stand to inherit and notice, too, we get to call God Abba, Father. Now, that word Abba is really interesting. Uh, it only occurs three times in the whole Bible. Once in Mark 14, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, a very powerful prayer, and then here in these two passages, Romans 8 and Galatians 4. Uh, you might also know this name from somewhere else. 
Swedish rock band, right? Yeah, that's where everyone goes first, right? Um, they stole it from the Bible, by the way. That's where it came from. Uh, now, you may have heard that it's a very kind of intimate, childlike term, daddy. The Abba and daddy. You can see the kind of the language connection uh, as a small child says dad or daddy for the first time. Um, it, that's, that's a lovely story, but it's not quite accurate. Um, I'm not trying to say it's not. It certainly is a very personal term, um, but it's not quite as childish as dada or daddy. Uh, it's a bit more respectful culturally, but still personal. Uh, it was used by children and adults alike. So I'm trying to say it still was personal, but not quite the dear daddy God prayer that sometimes people say you can pray. Um, if that's what you pray, that's fine, by the way. I'm not trying to have a go. You're just saying the language here is a little bit more formal. Now, that is a very radical thing. When you start to comprehend that God is your father, it, can you see how it starts to really revolutionise your spiritual life, who you are as a person? You say the word father and you have the attention of the creator of the universe. Buddhists have to spin a prayer wheel while they're praying. And the very smart Buddhists put their prayer wheel on their hard disk drive on their computer. Because when, not solid state disk, but the old fashioned one. So when it's spun at 50 bajillion times a second, they get, get, get attention. You just say, Father. In other words, you're not just made in God's image, astonishing as that is. You're also part of God's family. He is your Father, and we are His children. And I use the word we there because it's, it, the revolutionary part here is Christianity is not just you and God. It certainly is you and God, but it's more. It's you and God and his family. Look, look around, right? This is family. You're stuck with people who are family, for better or worse, right? So how, how then can that, can that challenge us? Well, let me draw it. There are lots of things, and prayer is a really obvious one, but I'm going to come back to prayer, uh, a different sermon. I think there's just time. It's just not there. Um, I think because we're looking at identity, I think it really does profoundly affect how we see ourselves and offer extraordinary hope to a world that is struggling to work out what it means to be human, struggling with the whole idea of identity. See, when we understand our identity as a child of God, that is something that is unchanging and safe and secure and has eternal significance. Come what may in your life, that won't change. In other words, it's not your abilities or disabilities that define who you are or give you meaning. First and foremost, you are a child of God. It is not your age or race or gender that first and foremost defines you. Know what does? Being a child of God. Whether you're married or single, that's not what first defines you. What first defines you is that you are a child of God. If you're struggling with work or struggling to find work, that is not what defines you first and foremost. You are a child of God. It is who you are, made in God's image and deeply loved as his child. What an extraordinary security and peace it gives us in knowing who we are. And secondly, I think it, it profoundly affects how we understand church. 
Uh, we live in the most technologically connected age in history. On my phone, I have 36 apps that will allow me to connect with other people. I went counted them out. And I just got TikTok the other day. So I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. That's right. You can check my video out later. Anyway, digress. Uh, ironically, at the same time, most connected and most lonely. Rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s and skyrocketed since the year 2000, particularly since 2008, when what happened in 2008? The iPhone. Research has suggested that at least 40 to 50% of adults report feeling lonely, primarily in those under the age of 60, actually. Not that people over 60 don't get lonely, they do. But the increase has been massive in those under 60. Uh, Justin Rosenstein, he is the Facebook engineer who invented the like button. That's pretty impressive, right? He invented the button that we use probably more than any other. Uh, he says that he has weaned himself off his own product. He no longer uses Facebook because it made him, guess what? Lonely. He blamed the increase of loneliness in the rise of what he calls the attention economy. The attention economy is where everything and everything and everyone demands your attention right now. The little ding and the buzz on your phone tells you that you've got to attend to whatever it is on your phone. You're looking at each other like, that's what you do. That's what I do, right? Doom scrolling, got to respond straight away. Our attention is in deficit because of this. See, who's got time for deep and genuine and, can I be honest, time-consuming relationships? Do you know how inefficient human-to-human -human contact is? It can take years to get to know someone. But that's what we're called to do. See, being adopted by God into his family means you don't get a choice. You get a family. And so you, it's good to get to know them. And uh, Reese Bazant says, love is inefficient. It's a great line, isn't it? Love is inefficient. And so it takes time. And also, it, it's so radically inclusive. Because it's by adoption, there's nothing special about you that God says, oh, you know, Nikita. Well, you're great, Nikita, but, you know. <laughs> but not having a go at you directly. There's nothing particular about each one of us that God says, well, that's the thing I'm missing in my church. Sure, I can create nebula, but until Nikita came along, we've just not been able to cope. It's such a great equaliser because it's grace. It's not based on your race or your cultural heritage. It's a community not based on age or ability or interest, which can make it hard at times, can't it? Because we've got to find people who are very different to us in church. Each and every person is adopted by grace. Uh, as Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. He's not saying those things don't exist. He's saying those things have no bearing on your standing in God's community. In a world that is, particularly in Paul's time, massively patriarchal, a Jewish man would pray, I thank you that I am not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave. That would be his prayer when he, when he got together at synagogue. And Paul says, guess what? <laughs> Those things mean nothing 
There's no privilege. There's no hierarchy. There's no, there's no place for discrimination in God's family. This means when you become a Christian, you become part of God's people. They're the people you're stuck with. And so the question I have is that when, when you come to church, is there evidence here at St. Jude's in Parkville of a community of astounding, grace-soaked love or of awkward individuality? Maybe a bit of both. Too often, rather than displaying the irresistible beauty of Christ, we can make Jesus ugly to the world. A failure to make people feel welcome. Gossiping and clickiness and complaining and bickering. Look, forget bearing one another's burdens. I don't even want to hear other people's burdens. Why? Because it takes so much time and it's inefficient. But the radical call is no. We are to be a community of love. In fact, one of our, one of our, kind of, our broader picture as a vision of a church is to be a church for the whole person and the whole community and the whole city and the world as we aim to preach Christ crucified. In other words, we want to give everybody, both Christian and non-Christian alike, an attractive and challenging glimpse of what it looks like to be part of a Christian community centred on Christ and genuinely caring for each other in the midst of a world that is desperately lonely and desperately confused. Let me give you just a tiny example it's a really tiny little example of how this happens. Uh, one of my favourite things in my job is visiting new babies. Shout out to the new baby at the back. Fantastic. Yeah, babies, plural. In fact, we've got many babies. In fact, the more the merrier. So if you're thinking of having a baby and you're, and you're married, can I encourage you to... <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm excited. Anyway, uh, I visited them in hospital and, and we were chatting to this... Uh, it was their first baby and we're chatting away, beautiful kid, and we're organising a meal roster. Now, this is pretty low-level stuff, right? Meal roster at church, you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's not exciting. The midwife was doing her midwifery things in the room, uh, and she said, she overheard us talking. She said, can I get, do you get meals? Does your church organise meals for people when they have a baby? They're like, yeah, this is pretty, pretty average stuff, right? Church 101. She goes, that is amazing. Can I join your church? This is a woman who, as a midwife, had seen... Hundreds of babies being born, had seen different way communities, but had never thought that here was a community of people who are not related to the woman and, and, the, and the husband and the baby, but yet willing to organise a meal. That's a tiny thing, right? But it gave her a picture, just a little glimpse of what Christian community with God as Father and us as His children looks like. And it was attractive. So let me pray that we will be a church that does that. That as we gather here on Sundays, and as we gather in little groups throughout the week, we, we, we reflect this reality that God is our Father and that we are his children. And that is an astonishing privilege. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you adopt us as your own. That you are the most powerful and extraordinary uh, God who creates and sustains all things, but yet, astonishingly, allows us to call you Father. We thank you that we are not just made in your image, but we are part of your family.
May we cling hold to that beautiful truth in a world that is so confused about identity. And may that be reflected in the community, the family that we have here at St. Jude's in Parkville, that we may live out that reality to the glory of Christ. Amen.